Okay. So yeah, the thing about hitting the record button and beginning a conversation with people, you can kind of see them get the nerves out. Whereas I'm like, all right, we're going to start in three, two, one, and then people freeze. And then they're... Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly how that works. But I find that like a more casual, cordial introduction for a lot of people just works. And then I get to play back how you sound when you're really engaged in something. Yeah. Sometimes people's voices fluctuate. Sometimes they get really excited. Sometimes they do nervous things. But, you know. (laughs) Well, you did good for our last recording. So we just need to carry that over into this one. Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People serves as an intentionally inclusive hub of sex-positive resources to equip people affected by SCI stigma with the tools they need in order to navigate their diagnosis. My guest today here live at SCD Engage in Alexandria, Virginia. I just hyped you up like we're about to go into a wrestling match. <laughs> Tessa Robinson! <laughs> That's why there's such a large echo. No one wanted to come to my uh, podcast recording, except we got one person. Can we say names? No? (laughs) Elise in the building. Shout out to Elise, who's been super supportive of all of the Something Positive for Positive People efforts. And had it not been for her, I wouldn't have even known about SCD and Cage. So thank you so much. That's not our guest, though. Our guest is actually Tessa Robinson, who is a registered nurse in the... (sighs) Washington County Health and Human Services Disease Control and Prevention field, right? Correct. All that right. is where I work. Ooh, I can catch my breath now. What area do you serve? Oregon? Washington, I'm in Washington Oregon, County, or? which is part of what we call the Portland metro area. So that includes Washington County, uh, Multnomah County, which is Portland, Clackamas County, which is kind of southeast, and then Clark County, which is actually the state of Washington, just over the bridge. And you mentioned that you are a DIS, Disease Intervention Specialist, right? Correct. Now, can you give me a general overview of what that is? I've only recently heard the term. So, in a very blunt, fun way, we are sex detectives. I proudly say that. That sounds so cool. It is is the coolest job. What I say to individuals when they ask about what I do... I get paid to talk about sex all day, which yeah. I enjoy. And I imagine um, that the people you talk to don't enjoy it as much as you do, though, right? It it depends. It really depends. Um, you know, my experience has been if you give someone the open space and time, um, they will have a discussion about their sex life and partners and what they like to do. And I find it very fascinating. I feel very humbled when I'm able to engage in that conversation. And I learn just as much as they learn when we have conversations about sexual health. And Yeah. So what are some things that you've learned as a disease intervention specialist in communicating and uh, having exchanges with people in the space that you have to talk to? What have you learned? I've learned a lot. Um, you know, there's a spectrum of how much people like to disclose or talk about. Um, I really try to make it a comfortable, non-formal setting. I'm kind of casual with my conversations. That's the um, best way to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very non-threatening. You know, I try to really use their language. So. Um, oh, you're multilingual? No. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I speak Hidogo Swahili a little bit, but... Oh. Um, not not very much, but <laughs> that was over 10 years ago. Yeah, so I've learned that, you know, one example I guess I can give is I was seeing a client at our clinic, 
and um, we kind of go over their intake form and risk factors and different things and he had marked that he exchanged sex for something else. While I am collecting all of his labs and you know potentially treating him um, you know I had said well tell me more about this like how do you meet your clients and you know, how does oh, this work? Someone's you know? been paying attention to the uh, yeah. presentation. Yeah, and like, how, how does this work? And, you know, I was really taken aback because he said, thank you for asking. Like, no one really asks, and I'd really like to talk about it. So if you give individuals the opportunity, they will talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes more than you'd like. Um, but, you know, it's good. It's yeah. really, it's a good thing. It's, I think the more people talk about sex in general, um, you know, it helps delimit stigma, right? So, um, you know, another thing I always say is, you know, everyone deserves great sex. That's part of being a human is having awesome, great sex. However, you know, be safe about it. You know, come and get tested. Use condoms. If you don't want to use condoms, use lube. You know, um, prep. Yeah, there's so many, things. so many different options available to us that a lot of times we don't even know everyone's aware of the penis condom i just learned that there was an internal condom that can be used i've also learned the importance of lube and its role in reducing the risk of sci transmission but reducing the amount of friction that takes place so there are all these different resources that are available to us that we just don't really find out about until we need to find out about them. Yeah, it also lends well to meeting people where they're at. It's very easy to push condoms, condoms, condoms. However, um, I'm also a realist and not everyone uses condoms. So how can we allow them to have great sex without condoms and still, you know, kind of reduce their risk? Not Mm -hmm. entirely, of course, but reduce their risk. Mm -hmm. And so lube, I have a condom lube dispenser in my Uh, office at the clinic and I have it stocked all the time and I have a discussion about if you don't want to use condoms but you're engaging in rectal sex use lube it prevents tearing Um, one little saying that we have is open sores are open doors so you know (laughs) I I like to use these like cunning phrases but but it's yes yes and it's effective and it gets the point across. So Absolutely. Uh, in the instances where you find that people aren't necessarily using condoms or barriers, uh, because we're talking about a time where sex is not just penetrative penis, right. vagina sex. Yeah. So now we're talking about anal sex. We're talking about vulva owners engaging in sex with one another. So how are we encouraging people to stay as safe as they can be with such a diversity of types of partners. Yeah, so I I think, you know, again, not everyone's gonna use a condom, you know, how can we prevent or reduce risk of infection? So PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, is a a big one for HIV. Um, In regards to syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, any other STI related, you know, getting tested. And that is a conversation I have with clients. You know, it's really kind of dependent upon their risk. So, um, you know, it could be every three months, every six months, every year. You know, if you have a new partner, multiple partners, maybe you come in more frequently than if you're in a monogamous relationship. So um, I I really like to give um, individuals the opportunity and really take ownership of their sexual health, right? Yeah. It's almost a disservice to 
kind of sit there and, you know, kind of talk down, like, you must get tested every three months. Yeah. And, um, you know, for some people, it's a turnoff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so empowering clients is a huge, huge thing. I think we sleep on the power of suggestion. If yeah. you suggest to me that based on the information that I gave you about my sexual activity and the types of sex that I engage in, you suggest that I be tested every other month. Like, hey, yeah. well, based on the information that you just provided me, I find that it's an important or you know, more suggestive uh, way of just saying that it's a good idea. You know, you're not telling me to do anything. I find that when people try and make you do something, there's like a natural resistance to it. So when you're suggesting, you're giving them the ability to say, huh, is this for my health? Is this person looking out for me? Well, they're not making me do anything. And like, it's more of a battle with themselves. It's, am I going to do this or am I not going to do this? It's not like... I'm going to resist you or go against what you said. Screw the doctor's orders. Right. So I think that that's a very powerful way of going about that. And I love what you mentioned about how your patient who exchanged sex for services, how comfortable they got with you when you asked them, you know, tell me more about that. Because that in itself is so powerful because it's also building trust between the uh, care provider and the patient so that they're able to divulge all of the information needed in order for you to take the best care of their health. Uh, I, I'm friends with some sex workers through this podcast and I get questions about sex work often. So in terms of building and establishing rapport uh, with the doctor or with the people who um, provide everyday services to sex workers, so we're talking about getting STI tested, how can we get the sex worker to safely feel like they can open up to their provider is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. Um, Really, I I think you kind of have to check yourself first if you have any sort of, you know, um, bias or opinion on sex work in general. I think, you know, if you know it ahead of time, you know, maybe trying to work through that, um, you know, if if you're opposed to it or feel it's morally wrong. that's your opinion, you're entitled to it. However, it might not be a good way to you know, see patients who engage in that sex work. So um, I think one thing is just keeping an open mind. And um, I really, like I said, I, I learned so much from talking with clients and um, I try to listen. And you know, they might be having a bad day as with anyone, um, but you know, really just normalizing sex in general, right? There's different types of sex workers, right? Or individuals who exchange sex for something. And it may be, this is, you know, their career per se. This is what they do. It may be, I exchange sex for a place to stay at night because I don't have a place to sleep. Um, Or it's survival sex where I live in a homeless encampment and in order for me to feel safe, I have sex with a gatekeeper or someone who's going to protect me. I think acknowledging that you really don't know the full story until you ask someone. Yeah, I never heard of it that way. It really bridges a gap because sex work is not just sex for money. And there's this misconception. People don't even use the term sex work. They look at it as sex trafficking. Or yeah. They look at it like whoever's doing it isn't doing it by choice. But this is a way that real people are able to make a real living and 
just in exchange for sexual related services. There was a quote from someone and I'm really upset with myself that I can't remember, but I follow a lot of sex educators on social media. And someone posted that if you believe a coal miner isn't selling their body for work and you believe that sex workers are, then your problems with sex, it's not with work. And that really hit the nail on the head for me. And I might've just butchered the quote a little bit, but you know, you're going into a coal mine, you're putting your body at, at risk of all types of stuff. Like you're, you're killing yourself essentially. Yeah. And I don't know if that's the angle that it was taking, but it really makes a person go, huh? When you look at a field that's historically been like so common and I don't necessarily know if there's any stigma behind being a coal miner, but there's such a stigma behind being a sex worker. And now that you've just opened up my range of perspective in the experiences that you've had with your patients, your clients, and sharing that there's survival sex, I've never heard of that before. So to be able to have sex with gatekeepers so that you can have a place to stay. Or, or feel safe. Feel safe, yeah. And that kind of stuff just never has crossed my mind. And for society to just push down sex workers, like I'm beginning to really understand and empathize and be able to uh, sort of advocate for the decriminalization of sex work. And when we look at it from a medical perspective, we have to allow for people who are engaging in sex work to be able to come to their care providers and receive health services uh, just like anyone else who has a job. Yeah. And, and you also have to, I think, look at, um, you know, sex has a stigma attached to it, right? But then you have an individual, a trans woman, as an example, who's also a sex worker. So you're not only going in for sexual health, which is stigmatizing in and of itself, but then you have these multiple layers of sex work. And then being a trans woman, acknowledging that there is so much marginalization and people do not want to get tested or receive care. That's a big thing. And, you know, to be honest with you, I try to be as sex positive as I can um, and really just normalize. You know, everyone has their own individual idea of what sex is and how they identify. And I think we just need to respect that. Right? Yeah. As care providers, um, I think one of the things that you mentioned earlier uh, was for people to be more open-minded. I think there's a line between just open-mindedness and then willingness to learn. So, and I guess that's essentially what open-mindedness means, but I think that we approach things with this idea that society has pumped on us so that when we're met with our first sex worker, it's like, whoa, this sex work is this, but they don't look like this. And it's the same thing with people with STIs. It's like, oh, you don't look like someone who has an STI. So now that you've been confronted with conflicting beliefs based on the person who's sitting across from you compared to what you have always thought or believed, now there's an opportunity for growth to take place. And here's where you need to be empathetic. You need to be suggestive in getting the information because now you're in a position to really educate yourself so that you can not only help the person in front of you, but be a better asset to the community that you serve. Right, right. The other thing is with, and I'm going back to provider practice again, you can't just look at a patient and assume that they are gay, straight, trans, you know, you really need to have that conversation. So, um, you know, 
that is the importance of really having a great patient-client relationship. I can say I wouldn't want to go to a provider who's very awkward and kind of clumsy and you can pick up on that and then want to disclose like how I identify, who are my sex partners, what kind of sex am I having? Like he, this provider is very uncomfortable and then I get uncomfortable and then it's like this awkwardness. Yeah. And you know, unfortunately, um, someone might not come back for services. They might just have this bad experience and say, I'm not gonna go back um, and have a broad you know, stroke of, well, all providers are gonna be that way. Um, and I, I, I really truly feel that you know, we need to be more open and have honest, genuine conversations. Yeah. Um, and no two people are alike. Mm-hmm. which I find very fascinating and interesting. Yeah. Um, One of the things you mentioned before we started the podcast, and I wish I could have just came here, hit record, and let you go. <laughs> you mentioned, um, so we're at a STD Engage Public Health Conference, and you mentioned that you've gone to uh, similar events. And yes. Maybe not First like First conference is yeah. this, but yes. One of the things about these sort of events is that you get perspectives from various people who are in the field who may be dealing with the same issues in the community that you are and dealing with it in an entirely different way and so one of the things that you brought up was uh, testing for sex workers being able to provide them with testing and treatment can you tell that story again for me yeah so um, you know I'll tell us a story of kind of how I met this one trans woman um, sex worker and actually it was at a community event I was manning a table and, um, you know, kind of doing my social networking thing that I do. And I, she came up to the table and I was talking to her and we had a di- great discussion about sex work. And I'm like, tell me more about this. Like, I always like to learn new things. And I gave her my business card and I said, you know, if you need anything like testing or condoms or anything like that, let me know. And she reached out not too long after that. And I sent her a work package of work supplies. I have a question. So right now, sex work is criminalized, stigmatized. Are you in jeopardy at all for providing this level of service knowingly to sex workers? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, and I would still oh, do it man, anyway. I'll, I'll get you fired. <laughs> no. I, I mean, I would do it anyway. I, I think, you know, I think it's important to do what's right. And someone had said to me once, you know, as long as you follow your moral compass, you'll be doing just fine. Um, whether that be right or wrong in the general grand scheme of things. So I just feel it's very important to engage that very marginalized community. Um, and have a safe space and provide education. Um, and so I, I started doing this care package. Where, yeah, what's in the care package? Yeah, so this is actually really kind of cool, and I'm very proud of it. Um, so she had emailed me, this, this woman that I met at this community event, and um, she's like, I need some you know, condoms, whatever. Condoms are expensive, especially if you're using a lot. And I said, well, we, you know, we have a lot. We get from different organizations or vendors so she basically emailed me I want extra you know king size condoms and lube and flavored condoms and you know these different ones and kind of like just made this checklist of what she needed and so I put together a box I you know all these condoms I put in little separate lunch bags labeled them put some lube in there and mailed them 
to her mailbox and uh, put some testing cards and my information for any other sex workers that she may work with that also need resources. And what do you know, I get another email not too long after that from one of her friends requesting the same thing. And um, I just think that's great. I mm -hmm. think that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned the testing overnight yes. uh, yeah like so making that was a, that was an outbreak session here um, they were talking about it was in Baltimore um, how they were going out um, at night between 12 a.m. 4 a.m. and you know offering testing with a mobile unit and I thought wow that's such a great idea like you're really going to them where people need it the most and um, you're accommodating, you know, I think it's a barrier if you assume that individuals are going to come in 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, and get tested. So, yeah. I thought that was a great, great option. And yeah, you want to talk about taking customer service to a whole another level, like yes. I, I, operating outside of normal business hours in order to better serve the community and talk about what kind of trust that builds to show up for people and make it to where you're able to serve them in a way that is convenient for them. Right. Yeah. Were you about to say something? Well, no, it's just like, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. You know, and um, that's the other kind of big reason why I like doing what I do as a nurse is that I'm able to go out in the field and treat individuals, um, you know, and test them. Yeah. And, you know, transportation is a big barrier. That's something that's been mentioned throughout this whole conference and how can we eliminate that? And meeting people where they're at is key. Yeah. And um, I try to be as flexible as I can within reason. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it shows, I really do. Okay. Uh, you gave the example of being so suggestive and building that trust between you and your patient, and look what happened. You were able to also get a referral from yes. them, and now I'm assuming that there's possible there's a possibility of having even more referrals. It's where you were really able to impact this community just on how your interaction with one person went. Absolutely, word of mouth is huge. Mm -hmm. Very huge. Yeah, and a lot of the organizations that we have available to people, they really thrive on need. So when people are able to come in and they're using the services and you're able to take the information that's given to you, you're able to best serve the community based on the information that's coming directly from credible sources and be able to build on the resources on top of that. Yes. It's, it's you know... These it marginal like a bowling ball. <laughs> I did. Someone's bowling in the room next door. Well, I think they um, heard me. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, you're able to collect information from a trustworthy resource in order to help you best serve this marginalized community. Correct. Um, and it is very tough to get information from individuals who are, for lack of a better term, living on the fringe, um, or mar you know, fringes of society, and are really not engaged with the traditional medical healthcare system. And so, you know, I think you can use those tools and branch out to individuals who are homeless, individuals who inject. Um, and really, I think what I've learned is it takes one person and a really good experience um, to have word of mouth, to have this positive 
communication, right? Like, yeah. hey, I'm going to go to this clinic because I really feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I think it's a great place to go and I feel safe and yeah. I can talk about whatever I want to talk about or what I do. So um, that makes me very happy. Yeah. Morning. I'm happy to have this discussion because I think that there's a direct parallel between let's say people who are living with STIs to be able to open up to their care providers and express that like, hey, I have genital herpes, I'm also sexually active with multiple people, what are some things that I can do to be safe? And these are conversations that more care providers are uncomfortable with and we have to get to a place where we can be able to disclose that information and not risk the fear of judgment but be met with more suggestive dialogue where you're saying okay well you know tell me more about that and then just through that tell me more about that yeah like that's a very simple powerful statement that makes me want to say okay well i have sex with and i can talk about all of the gender identities the types of sex that i have all from just that sudden rapport being built and i know that you have like a sheet of questions that will determine whether i'm whether or not I'm a candidate for PrEP, for example. And a lot of these questions can be answered just from you asking that open-ended question. So from there, we can talk about daily valcyclovir so that I can uh, reduce the risk of exposure outbreaks to partners. We can talk about various condom usage. We can talk about uh, how to use sex toys appropriately and go into the conversations with partners even um, in order to help keep them safer. So there's a direct parallel there when we're able to bridge that communication gap between doctor-patient where we are able to give you more information to help you do your job most effectively. Absolutely. You know, and and really kind of using the same language. So another example, you know, when you're asking about what type of sex, you know, do you have, um, you know, it can be very rigid, like, do you put your penis in your partner's rectum? And, <laughs> you know, I, I will say, are you a top or a bottom if they identify as having sex with men, right? Um, so that's you and speaking they the language. Absolutely, that's you speaking they the appreciate language. that. Mm-hmm. Now, as a heterosexual male, I've gone into um, a testing clinic, a nonprofit organization, and I was asked about my pronouns. I was asked if I identified as a man or what I identified as. And the questions that were asked, because I'm in this space and I'm aware of its importance, I was like, wow, you know, no one's ever asked me this before. And you don't realize how important it is until you see it affect someone close to you. So now that I'm in a space where I'm able to hear people who are misgendered or mistreated based on uh, their queerness, their queer identities, um, or I'm sorry, their sexual identities and who they choose to have sex with, I'm like, wow, This is important that we be able to recognize when there are queer-friendly, empathetic, compassionate care providers that ask these kinds of questions and are open-minded to a point where I feel like I can really open up and say whether or not I'm having sex with sex workers or uh, if I'm having sex with men or if I'm STI positive and I can really open up and have these conversations. And really, it's it's mutually beneficial, right? Yes. Because you feel more comfortable, provider feels more comfortable. Um, you know, you can have this open conversation on specific testing, and I I, I truly feel like it definitely increases health outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, 
hopefully if someone has a good experience, they'll keep coming back, right? Oh, yeah. And that's that's another big thing. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned prisoners earlier. I, I incarceration, believe. yes. Incarceration, yes. yes. Uh, was that a bad word? No. Okay, no. I, I need to know if it's a bad Inmates, word because like, yeah. we're all learning here. <laughs> yeah. And so this is a space where we're all learning yeah. out loud. Um, I got corrected earlier when I used the word homosexual, and I was like, wait a minute, is that a bad word now? And I was told, yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so not prisoners, but incarceration clients? Inmates. Inmates, okay. Inmates, So you see inmates who are in prison. Or so, when they come out or when they're going in, how does that work? Okay, so, so I, again, work for a county. We have a county jail. The county jail um, does not, as an example, they do not carry bicillin to treat syphilis. So if they have an individual or inmate who tests positive for syphilis, or there is a case, then as a nurse, I'm able to actually go into the jail, back into medical, and treat that inmate and then also talk to them, interview them, do all of my DIS work. Um, and I think it's important because number one, I'm not corrections per se, I'm public health. And um, you know, one thing to kind of make people feel more comfortable is you know, you're asking questions about drug use. Um, they may be incarcerated on a drug-related offense, right? But I preface it by saying, you know, I'm here for your health. I'm not here to report you to corrections, right? Um, so I go to the jail. Um, it's been fairly frequent, a couple times a month, but then I also go to um, one of the state correctional facilities that's located in our county. Um, I do not do the treatment, but I follow up, meaning I do interviews and um, talk about partner services and um, that sort of follow-up. So I see both, jail and prison, which is a new a new thing for me, but I enjoy it, I really do. Mm -hmm. um, are you met with any resistance from inmates, incarcerated individuals? My experience has been that they are very open, um, very open. It's and just kind of like this, uh -huh, forget it, whatever, attitude? Yeah, and I just, I think really prefacing this discussion that I'm not going to report them for substance use, you know. Um, really, my whole key um, admission when I talk to individuals or when I'm doing investigations is to A, make sure that they are tested and treated appropriately, and B, um, any partners that they may have had are tested treated appropriately, right? So our whole goal is to decrease the amount of sexually transmitted infections in the county. Yeah. So I'm really kind of coming at it from a service perspective, like I'm here to help you, um, help me help you and your partners. Yeah. Um, so I haven't personally experienced any resistance um, from the individuals I talk to. That might not be the case for everyone, but that's okay. just been my experience. I almost feel like you're like a breath of fresh air for oh. a lot of people. <laughs> um, just in the way you carry yourself, in the way that you talk, in the way that, uh, like, how I'm sitting across from you now, even. Like, I'm wanting to open up and tell you about uh, things I've done. So I feel like I'm being interviewed in a sense. Uh, I got to bring myself back to being able to ask the questions. But uh, we're talking about STIs here in a very marginalized group, and we often hear and talk about the STD rates rising um, due to more casual sex and things like that. But we don't hear these kinds of stories. Why is that? 
about individuals who are incarcerated well, or these marginalized populations? Marginalized populations. Like, we'll say the numbers are high in these areas, and it seems like that's the end of the conversation. Casual sex, and yeah. then dating apps, and then marginalized groups. It's like we yeah. lump so many different things and people into just being marginalized, and that's a whole category. That's where they're the highest. It seems very dismissive to me. Yeah, I, I think one important thing, you know, in public health, we like our data, right? Um, we like our numbers. We like to be able to show on nice, neat graphs, um, you know, what are our rates and what are the trends. However, um, there are stories for each individual behind that number, and I think that's important. So, um, you know, with me, I really like to have this qualitative discussion with cases because it really lends and shows light on kind of their perspective and what may have led them to acquire an STI. Um, it's not just that they're being hoes, right? It's because they are engaging in sex work or, you know, they may have a partner that is engaging in sex with someone else and they're not aware of it. So um, it's very easy for us as a community um, to judge, right? And that goes back to the whole stigma around sexuality, sexually transmitted infections, right? I'm clean, you're dirty, you're a hoe for getting an STI, right? Um, and I think, you know, kind of bringing it down to individual qualitative stories really makes a difference because I think it shows that we're really, um, you know, we're all human, right? Um, and so, it really isn't necessarily, um, you know, the behavior that, I'm trying to think of a way of, a good way of explaining it, but, you know, I'm going to say injection drug use as an example. This is a, this is a big one. Can you acquire HIV from sharing needles? Yes. I think what I've found is that it's not so much the drug use, it's the behavior associated with drug use. You know, if you are using methamphetamine, um, most likely you're high and having sex and you're probably having really great sex at that if you're on meth. Um, but you might not be thinking about all of the partners that you're having at that time. Um, or you can't remember, that's something else I hear. And so I, I want to say that, you know, you can't just say drug use leads to increased rates, right? Like there is a whole kind of not just A to B, right? You used a word earlier, sinner, sin something. That's syndemic. Syndemic, okay. Yes, yes. And what's that? Is there like a collective Syn of a collection of epidemics Correct. that combine to make? Okay. So, so it's kind of like a synergistic, a synergistic epidemic? Yeah. Okay. It's like multiple epidemics kind of coming together and um, synergistically feeding off of one another and um, expanding, okay. you know, um, what we're seeing in Oregon, we're seeing increase, you know, injection drug use. Um, with that, you'll see, you know, sex work. You'll see, you know, more anonymous partners associated with increased meth use, as an example. If you are injecting drugs, um, you are at a higher risk of acquiring hepatitis C. and you know, if you have maybe a syphilis legion, um, like I said before, open sore, open door, so you would be at increased risk for acquiring HIV. So it's kind of like a perfect storm in a way of, um, you know, 
increase hepatitis C, increase HIV, STI, injection drug use. And I like to think of it as this like spider web of different factors. Um, and my, my brain just works that way. And you know, you have to also look at like social determinants such as like housing and education and you know what is the political climate you know and access to care and transportation and all of these factors that really you know interplay with one another and um you know it's it's easy to kind of surface level look at things but you really kind of have to look at the roots of what's going on to make a big impact yeah so you can't just look at it and say drug use is going up incarceration is going up so that that's why i see high rates are going up yeah it's yeah. a combination of things that influence behavior and in talking to you just now it just kind of made me have a thought that uh you don't have to elaborate on i can bring somebody else on but it made me think about why herpes isn't in the equation here the CDC doesn't test for or doesn't recommend testing for herpes because they find that the behavior doesn't change. Whereas all of these things that you just named off that are associated with uh, a certain behavior that increases STI rates, that is something that seems to be more of a priority. So this gives me something to further investigate from a little bit of a different angle uh, moving forward now because. I mean, I have herpes. A lot of the people who listen to the podcast have herpes, and we want to know why we're not on the radar. <laughs> right, and I, I will say I, I do get a lot of questions about herpes, and you know, as a disclaimer, I'm not a subject matter expert in that, um, but I can appreciate it, and I think you know, even just having a very minimal discussion, um, the very little information I do know, um, I think is helpful to individuals mm -hmm. and. Um, I think there needs to be, and I know you're working with us on resources and kind of information. Herpes, as with HIV, is there's so much stigma surrounding herpes. I mean, I remember when I was in college, um, you know, that was like such a bad word, you know. Um, and I think you're doing a really great job. Oh, I appreciate that. that. Yeah. Someone told a story, and we will never link to who this person was, but someone told a story about someone who told a story about uh, them finding out that they had HIV, and they were like, thank God it's not herpes. At least HIV is treatable. I was like, damn. Oh, wow. That's a great shift in perception, considering how far we've come from uh, the AIDS epidemic to people now having the attitude of, at least it's not herpes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, I, I mean, I've never known anyone to say that, but when I heard that, I was like, I heard that before wow. and I speak with people who have HIV and I've been uh, talking to people who have been like well I have a partner who's HSV positive and I don't want herpes what can I do I was like damn that hurts like you need to avoid that at all costs yeah because there's no there's no guarantee there just yeah. isn't everybody is different and that's what everybody needs to understand is that everybody manages the virus differently and the best thing that you can do is support your body as best you can so that it's able to fight it off itself. Um, and just to elaborate on what you said before, you know, yeah, you may not be the herpes expert and people have questions about herpes. I believe it is important for us to be able to share the necessary resources uh, and for the people who are providing healthcare to be able to just say, hey, I don't know, 
Yeah. Here's a place that would be a very good starting point and be able to reference sex education, ELD education, Emily the Past, to be able to reference Devin Elise Wilson's Love Profound, to be able to reference something positive for positive people or any of the support groups that we're associated with for people who are living with herpes and to be able to connect people with uh, the stories of people who are living with and facing the challenges of having an STI. So, I mean, my goal here is just to really get the health professionals behind something like this so that I can not only establish, you know, some layer of accountability and credibility, but to also be able to meet people where they're at and get these tools in front of them. You know, we just had this full-blown conversation about sex workers and being able to attack the STI epidemic within the marginalized groups, but we were able to label some of the marginalized groups. And that's just something that we don't see often. And um, I appreciate your transparency here and your openness about your experiences and being able to support people. Um, we gotta get more people on board with being willing to see the human. Yeah. And you know, I, I probably at more inappropriate times. Um, I, I try to insert humor as well, you know, like it's too it short funny. to be too serious, you know. And yes, I mean, I, I think the more open, honest conversations we have, the better. And um, I think it would be great if everyone was as open and honest as you are. So. Oh, I was going to say you are. Oh. <laughs> All right. Um, is there anything else that you want to leave us with or add here that I may not have gotten to cover with you? I don't. This is great discussion. I told you. We didn't have to take notes. First podcast, <laughs> I will say, was not as painful as I thought. Oh. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Do we have any questions from the huge audience that we have? <laughs> <laughs> All right. How can people find you? How can people find me? Or wait, do they want to find you, or do we want to direct them to your clinic, or what? Um, let's see. I can give you my email address if people have questions. Yeah, let's do for that. For sure. I I'm mean, available I, by email. That's perfect. So uh, we'll link to that in the show notes, but what's your email address? It is. In the event that you just like completely ghost me oh, on sure. this podcast recording. Um, so it is my first name, Tessa, T-E-S-S-A, underscore my last name, Robinson, R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N, at co.washington.or.us. All right, I'm definitely going to write that one down for us <laughs> so you can just click it and it'll take you right there. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thank Tessa. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People, live at STD Engage in Alexandria, Virginia, with Tessa Robinson, Washington County Health and Human Services Disease Control and Prevention Nurse in Oregon. In Oregon. All right. <laughs> um, I can be found on social media at H on My Chest. You can visit the website spfpp.org for additional information, additional podcast episodes, and link to the show notes for you to get in contact with Tessa. Um, like I said, this is an intentionally inclusive hub of sex positive resources, and by intentionally inclusive, I also mean these marginalized communities uh, down to a T. So if you're someone who is marginalized, if you have a story that we can promote on the podcast in the sexual health 
related area or sex positivity or sex in general i'd love to hear from you so don't hesitate to reach out you can go to spfpp.org or you can just email me directly at courtney at spfpp.org and i'm also most active on instagram so if you want to just direct message me there let me know you want to be on the show and we can get this thing set up till next time stay sex positive